The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You may be seated. Hey, good morning. Merle's next reading will be in Genesis. It'll be the descendants of Esau. It's about 25 verses of Edomite names. Some of them have vowels. Let's dedicate this time to the Lord. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the book of Psalms, and we pray as we look at this familiar psalm today that, God, you would, by your spirit, convict us of sin, build us up through encouragement, and make us more like Jesus. Our prayer is, God, that you would, as you always do, meet us where we are today and provide for us what is needed. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, for the next couple of months, we'll be looking at a different psalm each day, each week, I should say. And I thought it fitting to begin in a psalm that's very, very familiar to most of us, Psalm 23. I was speaking with a woman earlier this week, and when she was a child, this was many years ago, uh, and she went to school in Southern California. As a part of the curriculum in this public school, they were made to memorize uh, Psalm 23 as a part of their literature curriculum. And uh, so it's a special psalm for uh, most of us. I wanted to begin, though, talking a little bit about psalms in general as, uh, as a form of literature. I know that's a terrible way to start a sermon because I say literature and I just lost <laughs> half the room. But listen, I want you to listen carefully because it, it's really, really important. There's a number of ways that God communicates truth in the Word of God. And there's lots of different ways that uh, God has recorded and written down the truth he's trying to communicate. But let me just give you three big ways. One way God writes down the truth of what he's telling us about himself and what he's up to is narrative. That's history. That is stories of what happened to people and in the lives of people. And so when we read history, the account of Abraham having to uh, offer his son up as a sacrifice, the account of Noah building an ark, and all of these historical accounts, it's God telling us the truth of who he is and what he's up to through the events that happen in the lives of uh, real people. And so, but it's still telling us the truth of who God is and what he is up to. In Genesis 15, God makes a promise to Abraham. He says, I promise you're going to have lots of descendants and your descendants are going to bless every single person on planet earth. And God then tells Abraham, get a bunch of animals, cut them in half. Abraham then takes a nap. God then goes between the animals, and it's an incredible historical event when you're reading us. It's a powerful story because you got these animals cut in half, and God himself is passing through the animals, which if you know the story, Abraham should have been the one going through the animals, not God. And, and so what is God telling us through this account to Abraham's life? He's saying God makes covenants because he wants to, covenants we can't keep, and covenants he intends to keep at his own cost. That's what God tells us through that account. Now, God could have reduced the book of Genesis to a couple of verses and said, I keep my promises, and I keep promises you don't intend to keep, and I keep them at my own cost. But instead, God tells us these beautiful historical accounts, and they tell us something about God. And really, most of your Bible is these stories. Why is this important? It turns out, the best way for humans to learn stuff is through what? Stories. You tell somebody what they should believe and they'll remember a little bit of it. You tell them a story of what that belief looks like and they will remember it forever. 
And so most of our Bible, by God's grace, is the real-life events of people that communicate to us what God is doing. So that's one of the ways God communicates what he's up to. Through historical events where we see what God is like and what his plan is through the events that happen in and through the lives of people. Now, another way God tells us what he's up to are the epistles. That's another way God writes things down. These are, this kind of truth is what we call propositional truth. This is where God just tells us the truth. He doesn't tell us a story about the truth. He tells us the truth. So Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Is this a verse you're familiar with? What's the propositional truth? For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This not of yourselves. It is a gift of God so that no one could boast. So what's the truth God wants to tell us? He just tells us, and mostly, I, I don't want to sound too chauvinistic, but the guys go, thank you, just laying it out there. There's, here's the truth, and it just communicates uh, the truth. So here's the proposition, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And that's how the epistles communicate their truth. Let me compare this, though, with how it's told in the story. In John chapter 4, God meets with a Samaritan woman, and he asks her for a drink of water. And then he has a discussion with her about religion and the Messiah. And in the course of the discussion, they have a bit of a disagreement. And he explains to her who he is. And finally, he says to her, you know what? Why don't you go get your husband? And what does she say? A half-truth. I don't have a husband. And she said, you know, you're absolutely right. In fact, you've had five. And the guy you're currently with, you're hedging your bets because he's not your husband. You're kind of on the fence with this one. You're like, five have gone wrong, so this one we're just going to kind of hold out for a little bit, see how it goes. And then suddenly she's struck with her what? Her sin. And she tells as much. When she goes and talks to the townspeople, she tells them, I have met the Messiah. And why does she know she's met the Messiah? He told me everything I've ever done. And finally, the townspeople come and meet with him. He stays with them two days. And at the end of the two days, they say, we no longer believe because of what you've said. We believe because we have met him. He is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. What is that John chapter 4 telling us? For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourself. It is a gift of God so that no one can boast. It's the same truth. One is, which one do you like better, by the way? John chapter 4. I mean, come on, that's a cool story. But, but this is how the Bible does it. It communicates to us in different ways, but it's always telling us the truth. Here's the truth of what God is like. Here's the truth of what God is up to. So then we come to the Psalms. The Psalms are poems. So how are, if, if narrative tells us the truth of God through story in history, if epistles tell us the truth of God through propositions, here's the Here's the truth. How do the, how do the Psalms communicate truth? The Psalms communicate truth through how we feel. They're poems. They're designed to enlist in us emotions in response to what God is up to. The Psalms are supposed to make us feel something. That's what, what's supposed to happen. Those feelings in the Psalms are varied. Sometimes they, we read them and we feel joy. And other times we read them and we feel sadness. And other times we read them and we feel very angry. And other times we read them and they fill us with doubt and fear. And the Psalms are full of the full range of emotion. But nonetheless, in the Psalms, we're supposed to experience the truth of God. We're not absent the truth of God. The truth of God through how they generate in us Emotion. Let me show you this. Can I show you an example of this? And by the way, this is not the sermon. This doesn't count for me. <laughs> this is, my clock has not started. Galatians chapter 5. This is a familiar verse section of verses to you. Galatians chapter 5 in verse 16. These are not on the screen. These are a game day ad. Galatians chapter 5. And you said, wait, you weren't, you weren't planning on doing this? Right. No, I wasn't. So here we go. Buckle in. Galatians chapter 5, these are familiar. Now, we're in the epistles, so what kind of truth is it communicated? It's proposition. This is Paul. Here's the truth. Boom. We love it. Here it is. I say to you, walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. If you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. 
Verse 19, the works of the flesh are evident. They're obvious. Listen to them here. Let me list them for you. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, you know, and things like these. What have we left out, Paul? Anyway, okay. I warn you as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, gentleness self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the, the flesh with its passions. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Okay, propositional truth. Flesh, Spirit. Live by the flesh, gratify the flesh, live by the Spirit. You're empowered by the Spirit to bear fruit of the Spirit. So that's propositional truth. Now we have a psalm that in my view is Galatians 5 as a poem. It's a very, very familiar psalm. It's Psalm chapter 1. So as I read this psalm, just a portion of it, you're going to hear Galatians chapter 5. But it's not designed to tell you the truth. You're supposed to feel what that's like. So listen. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. There's the works of the flesh. Sitting in the seat of scoffers. What's it like? What's the fruit of the Spirit look like? Here we go. Verse 3 of Psalm 1. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in seasons, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. You see the difference? Paul in Galatians 5 says, no, don't do the works of the flesh. Follow the Spirit. The psalmist does the same thing, but he asks us this question. Think about this as a question. Do you want to live your life like a tree planted next to the water? That no matter what, that no matter what comes, you're going to bear fruit. Do you want to be like that? That's what the psalm says. And most of us, if you have a heartbeat in you, go, oh yeah, I want to be like that. I want to be like a tree planted by water. I want to bear fruit no matter what comes, that whether the hellfire blows against me, it doesn't matter because I'm planted like a tree next to water. Well, how does Paul say that in Galatians? Bear the fruit of the Spirit. Say no to the deeds of the flesh. So the Psalms are designed to get us to experience the truth of God in our heart. Now, we have a practice. We do this every Sunday. Give you an opportunity to experience the truth of God in your heart. What do we call that? It's the part where we sing. Notice we just sang. You're supposed to feel something. Right? And that's the part where we see, we sit here and now we're going to listen to a lecture and you may not feel anything other than drowsiness. But when we're singing, the idea is now we're, we're going to worship God, not propositionally, we're going to worship God through poetry. And we're going to be moved to worship God by what he has done. And we're going to express to him in a, in a form that's emotional, that's music. That our devotion to God. And we do this kind of thing all the time. Now, if you're a guy, you may have filled out an anniversary card for your wife before. And if you haven't, I would suggest you begin that and do it on your anniversary. Now, on the bottom of the anniversary card, you're going to write something. Now, most guys, not all of us, and some of you guys, you need to learn something here. Most guys will recognize this is not the time for propositional truth. <laughs> You are not going to write on the bottom of the card, I have been married to you. We share a bed. We have procreated. We share bank accounts. Your wife is not going to read that card, gentlemen, and just be swept off her feet. Now, some of you, she was, I would take that. I would take that, actually. <laughs> that would be a card I would receive with joy. Well, you, you write something on there because you want to reveal something about the relationship that has marked you. These years have meant more to me than anything else. And we, re we reveal something 
about ourselves to someone we care about, and it comes from, what do we call that? The heart. The ancients might have said the kidneys. We say the heart. But then we come in and we worship and we leave our heart in the car. We're going to save that for when we watch the NBA finals if our team is still in it. We're going to save that for some other time, but when we come in, and then sometimes because the worship isn't propositional enough, we get annoyed. We want, to, we want to sing something that's propositional when we're intentionally here trying to worship God with our what? With our heart. And, and we have to be moved for that. So that's where the Psalms are put into practice in our worship service is in singing. So let's look at this Psalm 23. Now you can start the clock. The, how, the truth of God in this emotional poem, Psalm 23, which I've entitled The Right way to go. The right way to go. The right way to go, first of all, in the first four verses of this psalm, the right way to go is led by God. If you're going to go somewhere, especially if you decide to go for a hike, say you're going to go for a hike around your neighborhood, if you're going to hike around a lake, if you're going to hike even up a, a mountain, some preparation is needed. If you're going to hike around the neighborhood, you might want to have the right kind of shoes on. If you're going to hike around a lake, you might throw some boots on, you might carry a bottle of water. If you're going to hike up a mountain, you might even throw in a, a, a backpack that's got a first aid kit, maybe a little bit of lunch, uh, maybe a parka. If you're going to be going into a little bit higher elevation, there might be some prep that is needed. If you're going to hike a very, very high mountain, say, for example, I don't know, Mount Everest, not only will you need some significant preparation, but you will also need a guide. You will also need someone who has the ability to get you from here to there. And Psalm 23 says this about life with God. There is a road to travel, and the road from here to home with the Lord is one in which we want to walk with God. The, the, there's a way to go from here to home, and God knows the way, God provides along the way, and he is with us the entire way. That's what he's going to outline for us, that the road that we have to travel from here to home is, is a long way to go, and, and God knows the way we need to go. God will provide us on the way, and God will be with us the entire time. Now, that sounds very nice, but listen to the three things I just said. God knows the way from here to home. God knows the way. Has anybody ever argued with God about where you're going? Yes, of course we have. So all of these things seem very, very clear, but there are things we struggle with. God knows the way, but every now and then you have that prayer, just like I do. Really, God, this is the way we're going. We're going to do this. I don't think you know the way, God. I think I know better than you, God. God also provides along the way. And again, we argue with God about this all the time. Sometimes, if, if the Lord has been very blessed, has blessed us, we might say, well, God provides okay, but I'm actually able to provide pretty well on my own. On the other hand, maybe we've really had a, a hard time of it, and we say, God, you're really providing? Because it really seems like I'm missing some things that you should be providing. And finally, the Bible tells us God is with us. And if you've walked with God more than 10 minutes, you've had a time where you've said, God, where are you? But the psalmist is going to tell us on this road, the right way to go, it's, it's led by God. God is he, he knows the way, he provides along the way, and he is always with us. Look at verse, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We would anticipate this from King David, who was a shepherd. He's setting the stage here for this imagery of a shepherd, but not just a shepherd. This is a shepherd who is a good shepherd, who, who cares for his sheep. Shepherd is an image of the king in Israel was common. It was normal for the king of Israel to be referred to as the shepherd of the people of Israel, whether good or bad. The prophet told King Ahab, look, my people are scattered about as, a sheep, as sheep without a shepherd. So God here is seen as the shepherd of his people. So David understood what it meant to shepherd because he had been a shepherd. And David, the king of Israel, is saying the king's shepherd is who? God himself. So David is in fact saying the king of Israel is God, not me. God is the king over Israel. And right at the beginning, David is telling us the importance here of understanding this road we're going to walk with God is, is this dependence that we must have on God. 
David is dependent on God throughout his time as king, and, and he wants us to, to recognize this is how we're going to walk in this road. From here to glory with God is to depend on God, who, who is our shepherd. Look at the end of the verse there. It says, I shall not want. He, he says this. He said, if I depend on the Lord, I will not go without anything that I should have. Now, again, we might disagree with God with what he provides, but David is saying, I completely trust God that he will provide everything that is needed and he will provide nothing that is not needed. And this is a dependency. I trust my God the way a sheep would try, trust a shepherd. And then he illustrates this with this picture of a shepherd. Look at verses two and three. The first, one, the fir the first section here, verses, verse two, he talks about shepherding. God makes me lie down in green pastures he, lies, he leads me beside still water. So there's a good shepherd. He takes his sheep to the places where there are good pasturage. If you've ever been to Israel, you sort of wonder, where did they take the sheep? Because it just looks like a lot of dirt and rocks. So what does that mean about a shepherd in Israel? He has to be really, really good at knowing where the good pasturage is because there isn't a lot of it. And it requires a lot of work and diligence to maintain a pasture. If you let sheep eat a pasture all the way down to the ground, you've ruined it. You've got to let them eat just enough and then move to the other one so that it can regrow back in. So number one, he says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. This is a shepherd that knows what a sheep needs and takes them to what they need. He leads me beside still waters. This shepherd takes the sheep to a place where they can be watered that hasn't been fouled. It hasn't been fouled by human industry. So if you had a, a creek that was running right through the city, you would take your sheep to the creek on the ups, upstream side of the city, not the downstream side after everybody's done their laundry and, well, and whatever else. You take them to the upstream side, and you don't take it to a spot where the, the water is moving rapidly. You might take it to a spot where it has, has stilled, and a, and a really diligent shepherd, if he can't find an appropriate spot where the water has stilled, he's going to take rocks, and he's going to put it on the side of the stream to create a spot where the water stills. And a, and a smart and diligent shepherd is also going to keep the sheep from tromping around in it so that it doesn't get all muddied up. And this is what this shepherd is doing. He's taking his sheep, caring for them, taking them to the places they need to be and making sure they have precisely what they need. The image here is God is a good and diligent and hardworking, caring shepherd. And he is the one when he leads, this is what life looks like. He, David then in verse three shifts his focus and kind of helps us understand what God is a good shepherd looks like. Verse three, he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So what does God do for us? He, he restores our soul. And what does our soul need for restoration? We need righteousness. We need God's ways in our hearts, not our own ways. God knows the right way to go, and it's the road of righteousness. And God takes us down that road because that's the road that is according to his nature, because God is righteous, isn't he? So this shepherd who is righteous is going to take his people down paths of righteousness. And he does so for his name's sake. He is God who is righteous and he wants to lead us in paths of righteousness. This is what the shepherd does. He takes us to pasturage that's healthy for us and good for us. And he takes us down a road of righteousness. Now, do we always want to go down a road of righteousness? No. When do you not want to go down a road of righteousness? when you're awake, generally. <laughs> this is not something that we do by default. This is something where God, as a diligent and faithful shepherd, is leading us along, knowing that if left to our own devices, notice the sheep don't have the option of not having a shepherd. We need someone to take us down the paths of righteousness, and we need to trust he is good enough to do it, and he will provide for us according to his righteousness. So the right way to go is led by God, but he, he wants us to see as we look at sheep grazing in a pasture, having every need met, not a care in the world, he wants us to see this is what God is like for us, leading us down paths of righteousness. Now, on the other hand, King David had lived in the real world for a long time. He had fled for his life for a long time. He, uh, he was, uh, at one time, he was actually 
in league with the Philistines. He was going to go to war with the Philistines against the king of Israel, if you can believe that. He had been running for his life from King Saul. At a certain point in his life, he had to run from his life from his, from his own son. He was kicked out of his kingdom, and he had to go to battle to gain his, his kingdom back. And so King David is, is no one who thinks that the life of walking with the Lord is a, is a hallmark story. He knows that real life happens. And verse 4 reminds us of this. Look at how he describes this journey with the Lord. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. One writer notes that in Israel, especially around the city of Jerusalem, which is very hilly, if you're going to go to pasturage, maybe near Bethlehem, which you might imagine David was thinking of pasturage around Bethlehem, since that's where he was from. If you were to journey very far to another pasture, you would likely be going through hills and valleys, and many of these hills and valleys are very dangerous. And the, in fact, the Bible talks about one. There's a road that goes from Jerusalem to Jericho, and it goes through a very deep valley. And there's a parable that Jesus tells about the good Samaritan. Do you remember that? What happens in this valley? He's beaten up and left for dead. Because that's what happens in these dark valleys where there's not a lot of people. And so now this shepherd is taking his sheep from the beautiful sunny slopes near Bethlehem. But he's got to make his way over to maybe the eastern slopes of the Mount of Olives. And to get there, you're going to have to traverse some hills and valleys. And in some of these valleys, there are going to be predators. In some of these valleys, there are going to be bandits. And the entire way, you're wondering, are we going to make it to the pasture? But where do the, where do the sheep find their confidence? In the shepherd. In their shepherd. And look at where the confidence comes from. I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I fear no evil. Why? You are with me. That's what matters in that moment for this sheep. This is what matters for David when he's hiding from King Saul in the back of a cave. This is what matters for King David when he has to act like an insane person to keep the king of the Philistines from killing him. The right way to go with the Lord is not always easy and it is not always pleasant, but we trust that God knows the way, that God can get us through, and even in the midst of those difficult times, God provides both correction and protection, and that brings comfort. That's why he says there, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Those are two implements of a shepherd. The staff had a little crook on it. You might use it to grab the sheep and say, no, come over here. And that's a nice way of being that. You just grab it, come over here. Let's stay over here. Let's not wander over to that little wolf. Let's stay over here. And sometimes sheep can be a little bit stubborn, just like Baptists. I mean, I'm sorry, I don't know what it, pull over here and we kind of tug a little bit. So we kind of turn that staff around and give a little wacky poo on the hindquarters. Oh, okay. Yes, sir. And, and that brings comfort because he's there and he's caring for us. And then sometimes that rod is also not going to be used as a form of correction on the sheep, but it's going to be used on the predator or the bandit. And the presence of the shepherd is what brings comfort to the sheep. Now, as people walking through the valley of the shadow of death, we tell God all the time what would bring comfort. What is it? Take away the valley of the shadow of death. God, I'll tell you, I've got a fix for all my problems. Take away all my problems. And the psalmist says, no, no, no. Don't miss the presence of God in the valley. That's what the psalmist is calling us to do. He say, no, look, look who is standing with you in the valley. The valley is the reality because we live in the real world and we're not home yet. We're on the road to home. And the comfort comes from the presence of the shepherd. The right way to go is led by the Lord. Let me connect this just briefly with something that Jesus said over in John chapter 17. This is John 17 beginning in verse 14. I think it might be up on the screen. There it is. Jesus praying, but this is really uh, at, at the Last Supper, so his disciples are there. He's praying to the Father, but he wants the disciples to hear the prayer. Here's what he's praying. I have given them, the them here is the disciples, and by extension us. I have given them your word. The world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. Verse 15, did you read that? 
Jesus says, I ask you, Father, not to take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. This is Jesus praying that we would stay in the valley of the shadow of death. You hear that? He, he's praying that we will recognize that he is with us, not that we want to escape from the world, because the goal is to be uh, those who give testimony to the risen Savior in the world. Let's keep reading. Verse 16. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. So this is us living by faith in our shepherd, Jesus, in the world, which he says, no, I'm not going to take you out of the world. I'm going to leave you. In fact, I'm sending you into the world to be a testimony of the risen Savior. A couple of other places echo this. 1 Peter 2.11, a familiar verses, verse. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war, wage war against your soul. So the believer living in this world, going from here to home, is a sojourner, an exile. We're living in a world that Jesus has sent us to, not to be in the world, but instead to travel through it as testimonies to the risen Savior. One other verse on this, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. The, uh, Hebrews 11, he's talking about all these Old Testament saints. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged they were what? Strangers and exiles on earth. So this is the reality of following our good shepherd, Jesus. We live in a world that's not fixed yet. And so to walk through this world, the, the path we have to travel, Jesus and, and the New Testament writers acknowledge this is the valley of the shadow of death. So what is our hope? He is with us. He, he is with us. The Bible tells us we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. Romans says the Spirit of Christ indwells us. The Spirit that rose Christ from the dead empowers us to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And Jesus leaves us to be a testimony to his resurrection. So today on the road, God knows what our road is like. He knows it's difficult. He knows it's a long and difficult path, but he is with us and he knows exactly which way to go just like David explained in Psalm 23. The right way to go is led by God. Let's look at the uh, end of this Psalm, uh, verses five and six. What's the purpose of the journey? If the right way to go is led by God, what, where are we going? The right way to go leads us to God. And every time you go on a hike, you have a destination. So if you go on a hike, you might hike to a lake because you want to fish in the lake or swim in the lake. You might hike up a mountain because you want to see the views, even though you could download the pictures of that view on Google. You might hike to the store to get some Cheetos. That's my kind of hike. <laughs> or you might hike to the ER. And that's where a lot of hikes end up. So what's our destination? Our destination is not just to get through it. Our destination is the Lord. So what's great about this journey through the valley of the shadow of death with our good shepherd is he is with us and he is our destination. The goal is to find God because God is our home. The joy of arriving at home, the end of this journey is that God is there. Of course, he's with us today, but God ultimately is our home. The aim of our life is to be with God where he is and experience him. Let me read verses five and six as a reminder. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In these last two verses sort of uh, the poet here, David, abandons his picture of God as a shepherd because shepherds don't normally prepare meals for their sheep at tables. That would be a very different kind of shepherd. So he shifted from the shepherd metaphor here to God who cares for his people. And remember, table fellowship, when David was alive, table fellowship was a, an expression of peace. If you're going to have peace, you would you would have a meal with somebody. So if you went to a king and you made a treaty with that king, 
The way you express that treaty is you would have a feast together. We see that between Jacob and his father-in-law, Laban, at, when he is fleeing. They have a meal together as a testimony. There's peace between them. So the idea that God is preparing a table for us means he is expressing to us he wants to have table fellowship with us. He wants to be God who has peace with us. Not only is God not our enemy, there's no other enemy that poses any kind of threat. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Any enemy that would come, God is there. So what enemy could, could pester us? Well, none, because God is stronger than any that would come. So God prepares a table for us. And, and look how the meal is described. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. So what kind of meal is this? What kind of meal is this? Well, let me, I want you to think about this a little bit because this is a, a, a meal that God is preparing for someone who is a sinner. Because David is describing his life as walking through the valley of the shadow of death. This is not a person who is righteous. Did David ever do anything wrong in his life? I can't remember. <laughs> Did a couple of things. I think he took a census. That certainly was the worst thing. Well, it killed like 70,000 people. Of course, there was a relationship he had with Bathsheba. Also, we might say his parenting skills were suspect at best. So here is God preparing a meal for a sinner. So I want you to think about this just for a minute. This is my gift to you. Think about your relationship with God, maybe over the last week or month. Think of what that's looked like, maybe in your devotions and your things you do that are sinful, wrong. Maybe you've experienced in your relationship with God over the last week or months a little bit of shame and guilt. Maybe you felt bad about some stuff. What kind of meal would God make for you? Think about that. What kind of meal would God make for you? And most of us are thinking, here's the meal he would make for me. He would make me oatmeal with no salt because it has too much sodium. And to avoid any saturated fats, it would have oat milk poured over it. I was thinking about this theologically. You're not allowed in the Old Testament at least to cook an animal in its mother's milk. Are you allowed to eat oatmeal with oat milk? I feel like that's some sort of religious violation somewhere. That's what we imagine. He gives me everything I need. Oatmeal with oat milk. And some of you are like, that sounds delicious. And good for you. Good for you. Okay? What kind of meal would God make for you? And what's the answer according to this psalm? He would make you your favorite meal. He would make you your favorite meal. And I don't know what that, what that meal is for you. But whatever meal, what is your favorite meal, that's the meal he would make for you. And how much of it would he make? It tells you, you anoint my head with oil. That's refreshment. My cup overflows. Have you ever been to that restaurant with that one person whose job is to pour the water and you literally can't take a drink? Like you sip water. Let me top that off for you, sir. Let me work it down a little. I mean, let me... You work it down there. And this, is, this is the meal God is making for you. God is saying, I don't, the meal is not predicated on your ability to impress God. The meal is predicated on God being a good shepherd. And what is God like when he offers you a meal of peace? It's your favorite meal, and there's a lot of it. There's a lot of something. It looks like a lot of wine, actually. This cup is overflowing. This beautiful expression that I have everything I could ever need or want because God has bountifully met me relationally in terms of peace. This is not God saying, I would let, I'm going to let you into heaven because you prayed the prayer, but if I had my way, I wouldn't let you in because I don't like you very much. That's what we think God is like. God is saying, I extend to you peace bountifully because that's what God is like. That's what the, this psalm is supposed to go. Wait, it's make us think, wait a second, that's a, God, that's weird. Why would you do that? The nature of our relationship with God 
flows from God's nature. Look at verse 6. This is describing what this relationship with God looks like. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Why does mercy have to follow him all the days of his life? Because he needs mercy how many days of his life? All the days. Goodness also follows, though. Goodness also follows. This is God being good and kind, even though on that very same day his mercy is required. And then he's going to flow from this life to the next. This life, the valley of the shadow of death, the next life, the presence of God, and then he will experience with his eyes, with sight, with the presence of God, God's goodness, but no longer his mercy. Because there we won't require it. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Here's what I don't want you to miss about the valley of the shadow of death. You're gonna, if you're in Christ, you're going to live a long time. How long do you live? I think it's eternity, if I'm right. If I did the math right, it's forever. So most of your life is there. Now, we're not there yet, so that seems a far way off, but most of your life is not going to be here. This is the only place we get to live by faith. Most of your worship and connection with God will be by sight, not by faith. The only place you get to worship God this way is in the valley of the shadow of death. And here's just my brief challenge. We haven't got to the application yet, so buckle up. Don't miss the opportunity. Once we get there, that's going to be a whole other kind of worship, and it's going to be fantastic. But now is the time to see what it looks like to worship God in the valley of the shadow of death and say, I am one who is going to live by faith. I trust that God knows the way. I trust that God is providing along the way, and I trust that he is with me. I believe that he prepares the table before me in the presence of my enemy, and he looks at me in a disposition of pleasure and joy. Let's look at a couple of places of what it's going to look like in the future because now it's almost lunchtime, so let's talk about dinner. Revelation 19, what do we have to look forward to? Where does this table take us? John writing, I heard what seemed like the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saint. Verse 9. The angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said, these are the true words of God. So this is the, the, the supper we look forward to. Now we do. We sit at table with God in fellowship, but we anticipate a day in that time where we will sit at the table of fellowship with God, restored, made whole, resurrected, seeing with our eyes. But the only way to experience is that is to have relationship with God through Jesus. The only way to experience that meal is to trust Jesus for forgiveness here and now, to have Jesus by faith To trust Jesus to forgiveness means we have fellowship with God here and now and we will have fellowship with God at his bountiful table one day in the future. Revelation 21 verses 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the whole city, holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for a husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Now in verse 22, he says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. This is our hope of glory. This is where we're going. The presence of God, God's city, his temple is God himself because we've been made righteous in Christ. We get the presence of God. All our troubles are gone and glory is coming. It's just around the corner. The right way to go is led by God and the right way to go, according to Revelation, anyway, takes us to God. 
Uh, let me give you just two or three little ideas to think about, and these should only take about an hour. Back to Psalm 23, verses 1 through 3, the Lord is my shepherd. The right way to go is led by God. This means God, God handles the path. God handles the way we rest in God. So this is where faith comes in. We recognize that joy will not be found on a different road. Joy and righteousness and the presence of God is found on the, on the path that God takes us. And the reason that path is filled with joy is because God is there. The whole point is God is with us. The point is not the path. The point is the presence of God. The Lord is my shepherd. He's with us. He is the one who brings us comfort. This is a challenge for us in our life as we deal with lots of different things that we deal with in life, the difficulties of living in a broken world. And we want to experience the joy of the Lord when, joy, when God takes away our trials. And sometimes he does, and that's a blessing. But other times we need to, by faith, say, you know what the joy of this path is? That God has never left me. That God has never left me and he never will. In verse 4, of course, we remember he talks about walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And this is what we need to recognize is Jesus knows what it's like to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, doesn't he? Humbled himself to the point of death, death on a cross. So God is not distant. God is not unaware of the difficulty we are dealing with living in this broken world. He is well aware of the temptations and trials we face, the difficulties we face. He knows more deeply the difficulties of this world even than we do. He knows the cares and burdens that we carry. And he says, I am with you and I am going to provide precisely what you need. I'm going to give you what you need. Even if you agree or not, he's going to say, here, I'm going to be there for you and with you and I will provide for you. Uh, one last uh, illustration of this, David, uh, understood, in 2 Samuel chapter 9, David uh, extended friendship to a guy named Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. Took me 30 minutes to say that correctly. Mephibosheth. Notice nobody nowadays when they're picking Bible names for their kid. <laughs> David, Andrew, Peter. These are common. I haven't made, I've yet to meet a Mephibosheth, even though there's two or three of them in your Bible. Unbelievable. I don't know what the nickname would be. Fibbo? <laughs> Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was the son of Jonathan. Mephibosheth, when Saul had been killed and Jonathan had been killed in battle, his nurse grabbed him and fled because normally the children of the dead king would also be slaughtered. She was clumsy and dropped him. And as a result, he was unable to walk. He suffered a debilitating injury in his legs. He was then living out east of the Jordan River and David said, you know what? Who is still alive in Saul's kingdom that I can show him kindness? And they said, Mephibosheth is alive. Bring him in. So they go get Mephibosheth. Somebody obviously would have had to carry him into the presence of the king. What does Mephibosheth think is going to happen? What are the last remaining people who come from King Saul's line? What is it going to happen to him? King's going to finish the job that the nurse failed to finish. But what does King David say to Mephibosheth, this enemy of this state, this enemy of King David's throne? And what does Mephibosheth offer David? Can he lead an army? Of course not. He can't even walk. What does Mephibosheth, he offers nothing to David other than a threat to his throne if faithful followers of King Saul might decide, you know what, this Mephibosheth should be king. He's son of, of, of King Saul's son, Jonathan. And what does, what does David do for Mephibosheth? Do you remember the story? He says, you will eat at my table for the rest of your life. More than that, what does he say? He eats at David's table. What's the, what does he say? Do you remember the story? As one of his sons. Mephibosheth, why was he living east of the Jordan River? He was as far away from Jerusalem as you can get and still being in Israel. And now, what's he doing? He prepares a table before me. My cup overflows. Who took the initiative to make this peace? The king or the enemy? The king took the initiative. The king extended peace when there was no need. What benefit does this peace offer David? 
Nothing. It offers him nothing except for one thing. It offers him the opportunity to fulfill a covenant, a promise he made to his friend Jonathan. And what is David doing here? What is David doing here? He's acting like his son, Jesus, who takes the initiative to invite us to the table. And what benefit do we bring him? Oh, we think we bring him all kinds of benefit, don't we? Oh, Jesus, thank you. I'm a first-round draft pick to the kingdom of God. Please. We offer nothing. So what benefit does Jesus have calling us to table fellowship? He gets to fulfill his promise. He fulfills his promise to Abraham saying what? I will bless the entire world through you. And that, that promise is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We have the opportunity by faith in Jesus to experience table fellowship with God because he invites enemies, sinners. He takes the initiative and calls and says, sit at my table, not as an enemy, not as a representative of another country or another kingdom, but as my son, as my daughter. Jesus comes to restore table fellowship with his enemies. It's not mere forgiveness. He does forgive us, doesn't he? He forgives us and then puts a cup of wine in our hand and says there's more where that came from. Joy and peace and kindness of God. This is closeness with God. He restores my soul. The right way to go, Psalm 23, is led by God, and the right way to go leads us to God, the good shepherd. God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that these poems remind us of what you were like. And God, many of us, because of our relationship with other Christians, because of our history, because of our story of shame and guilt, we assume that you're in a bad mood and that you're looking for a reason to give us a bad day. God, would you allow us to encounter the reality of what, it's, what you're really like in this psalm, that you are a shepherd who is guiding us on the right way to go, providing us for all that is needed, and you invite us to a table fellowship with you. God, I pray for those of us who are here this morning that are believers and have been believers for a long time, but somewhere along the line, we came to the decision that you are really, really upset with us. God, would you allow us to see the truth of the cross in the open tomb that tells us all your judgment, all your wrath was put onto our Savior, Jesus. And when we turn to you away from our sin and repentance, we experience new life and peace with you. And it's simply a trick of the enemy to try to convince us that we don't experience your mercy and grace every day. But God, there's a lot of us here today that do not have table fellowship with you. We, we have yet to put our trust in Jesus for forgiveness. We want you to have peace with us on our terms. And God, I pray in this moment, we would find that peace with you by turning to you for forgiveness and trusting you to save our souls. We thank you that our, you are our good shepherd. We pray, God, that you would provide what is needed for each of us in the unique valleys that we struggle with. And God, we pray you would give us the strength to be faithful to the very end. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Would you stand up with us as we close with a song?